Airbenders alike, welcome to Braving the Elements, Nickelodeon's podcast about all things Avatarverse. I'm Janet Varney. And I'm Dante Bosco. The last episode of book one that we discussed was The Fortune Teller. That's right. And we are joined by our buddy Ivana Lynch. Yes. From many, many things, including playing key character in Harry Potter movies. Shout out to Luna Lovegood. And she was awesome and amazing. And of course, in that episode, we saw the gang prevent a town from being destroyed by a volcano. It's too much. It's going to overflow. And some progress appeared to be made in the Katang department. Certain things are going to turn out very well. They sure are. Why? What did she tell you? Some stuff. You'll find out. And then this week, we'll meet a significant new character in book one in Bato of the Water Tribe. Bato! Saka, Katara. It is so good to see you two. You've grown so much. Hi, I'm Aang. And now we can reveal the powerful secret that we've been holding on to, even though if you are a person listening to this podcast, I guarantee you, you have already read and know that we have this guest on. But to talk about this episode, we are so excited to be joined this week by Megizzi Pensano, who has been working with Mike and Brian and Avatar Studios in all kinds of ways, certainly in a Native representation capacity. And also, I'm fangirling because he is a total badass in the comedy world and in the writing world. Right now he's working on the very fine indeed Reservation Dogs on FX. Welcome, McGizzy. Welcome, McGizzy. Thank you. I'm so pumped to be here. It's funny because we always talk about in the Reservation Dogs room, and we are always having to battle against or upend people's ideas of what Native representation has been in the past. But straight up, I don't know a single Indian who doesn't love the Avatar universe. Oh, <laughs> and how how all of these blends of cultures and how all of these different blends of influence without being appropriative has happened. And so when Brian and Mike first asked me to jump in and start talking about this stuff, because it's it's what I'd done for a very long time. I was part of a comedy group called the 1491s with woo, 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 woo. four other Native guys. <laughs> yeah. yeah. 1491. Sit with that for a second, everybody, and understand why that is the perfect name for this sketch. <laughs> yeah. It comes from sort of two places. One is that, you know, we joke about, like, things were better before Columbus landed. But then two, it's our way of saying to other Indians that we're more Indian than you are, which is not really true. But um, doing that, I got to go around to all kinds of places in Indian country across Canada and the U.S. and Alaska and Hawaii. And I got a chance to see different aspects of Indian country because there are over 570 odd tribes in the U.S. and there are 400 more in Canada. And each of them with different languages and different cultures and all that stuff. So saying something is any one monolith thing of native representation can cover everything. It's just not true. Yeah. But I've gotten the chance to see the ways in which all these native people and native tribes and nations are similar to each other. And have done a lot of my scholarship and would go around and give talks about native representation. And so with that as a background and also screenwriting and stuff, I met with Brian and Mike. And I think our first conversation was eight hours long and we sat around just chatting and it was yeah. sort of amazing we all hit it off immediately and these conversations are happening because of course the northern and southern water tribes were inspired by coastal tribes pacific northwest tribes alaska native tribes right yeah i've been jumping in into the avatar universe as much as i can wherever i can since. Do you mind if we ask where you're from originally? What's your background? Yeah, I'm from northern Minnesota. Originally, I'm Ponca and Ojibwe are my two tribes. My dad is Ponca. My mom's Ojibwe from northern Minnesota. And I traveled all over the country. But then I, I sort of landed in Montana for a lot of years before finally coming down here 
Los Angeles just in time for the pandemic. Good so, for you. <laughs> it's been, Welcome. Yeah, it's been nice. Now it's been several weeks, but a semi-recent episode of Reservation Dogs took me into a deep dive of fry bread because I grew up in Arizona and spent much time going to powwows that white people were allowed to go to or invited to and eating a tremendous amount of Indian fry bread. And I was like, what are these cats doing making Indian fry bread? Because I thought of it as being so Navajo. (laughs) The Navajo feel the exact same way as you do about their own (laughs) fry bread. It's funny because everywhere else in the country... We developed Indian tacos, which are just fry bread with a bunch of taco fixing on top, which is amazing. But Navajos don't. They call them Navajo tacos because oh. they are who they are. There you go. That's funny. You're not amazing. alone in that. I love that you absorbed <laughs> a little bit of the Navajo ethnocentrism just being around. I, <laughs> I became a snob. Well, I also was like a huge nerd for American Indian cinema and did an internship at the American Indian Film Festival slash Institute. And there is some very fine filmmaking in that realm. And that is kind of how I feel about Reservation Dogs. I've never seen a series quite like that before that felt like it had all of that same punk rock indie spirit that are infusing some of those films. So right on. Great work. Loving it. Thank you. Ugh, Thank so you. So good. I am fanboying out a little bit right now, hanging out with Dante, because I know a lot of people go towards Rufio and all this stuff. But for me, growing up also being a martial artist, I loved Perfect Weapon coming up. <laughs> yeah. And that was, oh, my God, this thing. There's like this brown kid over here. Man, you were native to me for, for a really Locked long time. So I was like, that's the representation that I had. is somebody that was modern and brown. Yeah, because we're brown and we're indigenous people from our countries. And so I think we're all connected. People have not seen The Perfect Weapon. I think I was 12 years old and I got to work with Maka, who ends up playing Uncle Iroh. Love it. In, Avatar Less Airbender. So that played my uncle or my father or my father figure several times throughout my career, but being the perfect weapon is the first time he did. So if you want those early Uncle Iroh Zuko feels, you can go check that film out. The Perfect Weapon. Big time. Starring <laughs> Jeff Speakman. Jeff Speakman, yeah. Co-starring Dante Bosco, young kid Dante Bosco. <laughs> I, I grew up in a time in Hollywood where I did play Native. My first thing I ever booked was a Native role, which was interesting and being around the community. And then years ago, I went to a Comic-Con in North Dakota I grew up in L.A. and the West Coast, and North Dakota was the first con I went to where all of a sudden my Q&A is filled with Native kids. And I was like, whoa, what's going on? And they were talking to me about Rufio and how they totally was their representation with a brown skid kid, yeah. the Mohawks. And we had this whole beautiful conversation about that representation and what that meant to that community. And I ended up going to the res up there, hanging out, and it was eye-opening and an amazing experience. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. I love hearing that. That's exactly my experience. I was thirsty for representation, so you take what is available. Now, what's great with where the world's at now, I get to go out and make that representation, which is fantastic, and be a part of these things. Cool. There was native cinema, but nothing like what you're doing now, Reservation Dog. I can't think of any other show ever in the history of American television. I can't come up with one show. No, we're breaking ground. It's crazy. It's amazing. Congratulations. It's so Thanks. good. It's Thank so you. good. Well, that's going to do it for the podcast. Thank you so much Thank for coming on. Thank you guys on. so much for joining us. We're all about ready to wrap it up. <laughs> yeah. Please watch Reservation Dogs and goodbye. <laughs> So we're going to get into this episode, Bato of the Water Tribe. When you started talking to Mike and Brian, what was the conversation like in terms of them coming at it, saying, here we are, a couple of white dudes. We do have this incredible respect and love for so many diverse cultures that are not categorically white. How does that conversation feel and look? What was that eight hours like with respect to talking about Native representation in Avatar? 
What's funny is that if you know them, you know that they're the most respectful people on the planet. A lot of it was listening to me and giving like, here's where natives are at right now and this is how we got here. And I just ran through a giant history lesson, essentially. So they just listened to me babble for a really long time. And we were talking about live action stuff that used to be at Netflix. We were getting into that and they were like, look, live action is a lot different than animation. We're going to be going through. And they took all of my suggestions. All right, these are the artists and academics and language people from the different tribes upon which some of the water tribe stuff is based. This is who you should talk to, people that are living on the coast, Pacific Northwest tribes, Alaska Native tribes, and they're just really receptive to it. The way that the best fantasy things are is that they're informed by real history and not appropriate of real history or anything like that, but they're informed by it and it makes it just a richer world. Yeah. It was a collaborative conversation about, well, these are the ideals from this creation story. And so we don't want to rip this off, but let's talk about these creation stories or yours. And I told them about my my nations and our tribes creation story stuff it actually got spiritual <laughs> we talked very core sure. beliefs that's not surprising at all everything is about the elements yeah. in the avatar universe and so how do we react with the world around us in what ways are we respectful and disrespectful it was pretty incredible yeah i felt not just listened to but respected and, and immediately a part of the team which was fantastic. Oh, man, that makes me so happy. This is and I love one thing you keep saying is respect. And as we move into this new era of media and as people of color in Hollywood trying to walk that line right now, of how do we do it? And I always try to remind people it's about respect. And I think that's one of the things that Mike and Brian had early in the game that is what we want as people of color. We want Hollywood to approach our stories with respect. That's the utmost thing. One thing yeah. we haven't always had in the past. Yeah, Hollywood's as good at othering as just about anybody else. Mm -hmm. Totally. So, without further ado, do we want to get started? Let's go. I'll just give a quick synopsis of what the episode is about. Obviously, this is a big one. You know it from the title that Katara and Sokka reunite with Bato and their father's old friend from the Southern Water Tribe. Bato suggests, I'm going to be meeting up with your father. This is your opportunity to see him for the first time in a couple of years. And immediately, we are faced with this idea of chosen family versus blood, where Aang sees this as a threat. He sees this as the opportunity for his friends to leave him. And for that reason, he makes a tough decision, which let's also remember he fully comes clean about pretty quick. So it's not like he's living with his dark secret for years. But he does do it. It's the map to Sokka and Katara's dad. And we also meet this bounty hunter named June. Zuko has enlisted to track down the Avatar. And after defeating Zuko, and we see that Katara and Sokka, in fact, do choose to go along with Aang and that he is part of their family as well. The episode was written by Ian Wilcox and directed by Giancarlo Volpe. We see these moments of Aang's character development. So it tells us a little bit more about the Southern Water Tribe, the memories that Sokka has of his father leaving. And then again, that big theme of the family you choose, which we see in some form in almost every episode of book one, I think. Dee, why don't you get us started? What happens at the beginning of the episode? The episode begins with Aang stumbling across a well-toothed sword, triggering Sokka's own childhood memory of when all the men left their southern water tribe village. Excited at what this could mean, Sokka leads the gang as they look around the area of the sword, and they find clear evidence of a battle between firebenders and water tribe members. They follow the trail, which ultimately leads them to the beach where they see a southern water tribe ship. Wait, look! It's one of our boats! Is this Dad's boat? No, but it's from his fleet. Sokka recognizes it instantly. 
It's one of their father's fleet. He was here. All of a sudden, you know, there's an emotionally deep Sokka episode because he's going back into his past. And it was my first feeling as I was watching this episode. And also that reminder, their father has felt so far away. He's an abstract concept at this point in the show. Totally. They don't talk about him that much. And all of a sudden, Katara and Sokka's dad is a real dude who there is evidence of either him or his tribe members having been in the exact place where they were. We have not seen anything like that in their adventure so far, right, Mikazi? We haven't seen anything like that, but it's also, they've been on their own adventures, but the idea of a global war, everybody has felt these encapsulated groups up until this point. There's the chasers and the chases, and everybody's in their own world and adventure. You're never really under threat as they're traveling around until they get to the Northern Water Tribe. Well, at least the Southern Water Tribe, people are still leaving them alone. No, they're out there in the war right now. They have family that are in a part of this conflict. And it's for the first time when Sokka picks up that whale tooth sword, you're like, something's brought home here. Danger is closer to home than you think. Just because you're out on the road and just because you're not there, just because you can't see there in your rear view a little bit, doesn't mean that it's safe. Everybody's still in danger and the world is still in danger from this greater threat. I thought that was really interesting because it just feels bigger and closer all at the same time. That's so true. And also, if you've already lost one parent, how stressful is it that your only other parent is just out there and you're not communicating with them? And which shows us how much of a big deal it is when they have the opportunity to see him, foreshadow report, which we already foreshadowed reported in the synopsis, that they choose to not be immediately reinforced with him. That touches my heart a lot. And that takes us over to the Fire Nation ship where Iroh and Zuko are trying to have this, as Iroh puts it, a quiet moment because a moment of quiet is good for your mental well-being. We see a lot of these moments with Zuko where he's almost in this flow. He's almost maybe going to relax. He's trying to meditate. He can't he's do trying. It. He can't do it. <laughs> <laughs> he spills that tea all over himself. Have a moment of silence. Guess what? Tea all over my clothes. Everything. It just doesn't last long for our sweet, sweet Zuko. In this case, a giant creature shows up, the woman on top. They're looking for a stowaway, apparently, that's on the ship. And the creature's so strong, we see it literally rip right through the metal of the ship with its teeth. It is not intimidated in any way by this Fire Nation ship. The creature, which we now know to be a Shirshu, whose name, by the way, is Nyla, and we'll talk about the inspiration for Nyla and June. But Nyla is a combination of an anteater, a wolf, and a star-nosed mole. That's also a triple threat combo in the Animal Crossing department. Triple hybrid! Fairly rare. We see a lot of doubles, don't see a lot of triples. So that's also very intimidating. Nyla is indeed very good at hunting bounty because they find the stowaway on Zuko's ship, which to me seemed like a very bold place to choose to stow away. I feel like there are a lot of less dangerous places than the Fire Nation ship of the Prince's ship, but that guy did it, and he was getting away with it for a minute. That guy has no respect for Zook on his ship. They're no like, respect. I'm on the banished Prince's ship. No one's checking for me That's here. Right. That's the rest right. of Fire Nation don't care about this dang ship. We also get to see the cool POV of the Shirshu who sees in black and white. We see these colorful, groovy chemtrails that seem to be isolated to individuals color for color. I love how you call them chemtrails. <laughs> <laughs> and then as if all of that weren't impressive enough, the Shearshoe can also paralyze people. The paralysis lasts about an hour, we learn. This is a bounty hunter, right? This is June, and she explains that her Shearshoe can smell a rat 
a continent away. And also, in Brian's words, June is visually based on our good friend, ATLA LOK crew member Lisa Yang. Shout out to Lisa. The sheer shoe's name and coloring was named after one of her dogs, Nyla. So there's that. And then, side note and foreshadow report, the character May was inspired more by Lisa's personality. And King Quay's bear was named after Lisa's other dog at that time, Bosco. So Lisa Yang is all over this show. She's all over this show. Inspiration for this show. (laughs) Shout out to Lisa Yang. McGizzy, what happens next, my friend? Well, well, later that evening, and Team Avatar camps on the beach. Sokka's poking at fire, thinking about the day his father left the Southern Water Tribe to go fight war. And Sokka himself, the little version of present-day Sokka, who looks incredible in his war paint, shows up as the men are leaving, and he wants to go along. But his father, who could have simply told him that he was too young, instead says that Sokka has got a very important responsibility. I'm coming with you. You're not old enough to go to war, Sokka. You know that. I'm strong. I'm brave. I can fight. Please, Dad. Being a man is knowing where you're needed the most. And for you right now, that's here protecting your sister. I don't understand. Someday you will. I'm going to miss you so much. (laughs) And it's a tearful goodbye. And back at the beach in our present time, suddenly there's a noise. And it's Bato, voiced by Richard McGonagall. During their reunion, Sokka and Katara ask where their dad is. And Bato says he should be in the Eastern Earth Kingdom by now. While all of this is going on, Aang introduces himself, but gets lost in the shuffle. Poor guy. They lay that down quick. Oh, hey, I'm cool. All right, you guys are talking. I see. (laughs) (laughs) Basically seeing their uncle. And he's wrapped up in AIDS bandages or something. This dude's wrapped up like a mummy. He got hurt. I also don't know if it's just part of their bandage, because Sokka has those on his arms. It's part of his outfit all the time. Yeah. But Bato takes Team Avatar to an abbey, where nuns have been taking care of him while he was injured in the fight with the Fire Nation soldiers. I was kind of thrown. I was like, there's nuns over here? All of a sudden, my mind went to sound of music and I thought of like <laughs> Maria like that is sort of a, a literary trope that's familiar the idea of a friary to a nunnery you go you could go to the abbey you, that's a place that you can go and be safe if you're a warrior who's been hurt you can go and sort of be nursed back to health the nuns are introduced to the avatar which puts Aang very temporarily in the spotlight and all of a sudden he's oh he's the avatar and then at the abbey Bato's made his quarters look like home in the southern water tribe including animal pelts which unsurprisingly kind of creep out the vegetarian Aang. <laughs> and then there's stewed sea prunes to eat. Bato, Katara, and Sokka share stories of Bato and their dad. And at this point, everything that Aang does to try to be included fails. The air nomad on the other side of the room and all the water tribe. It did feel real clicky. Now all the water <laughs> tribe people are going to talk and now the air people could be over there. Even as he gets berated for touching a ceremonial animal skin that was on the wall, it's clear that Aang is feeling pretty lonely and isolated at this point. We had another moment like this earlier. I remember a few episodes ago, I was remarking on how Aang is sleeping humbly right on the ground in his clothes, and Sokka and Katara are all bundled up in their sleeping bags. You just have those little moments of this cultural difference where when fully confronted with where he is from and where they are from, there are these moments of not necessarily open 
open conflict, just a sense of, oh, this doesn't mesh. This doesn't fit. And we know that Aang is a vegetarian and we know that it is hard for him to see those pelts. And he uses some seal jerky to make something early on. Oh, you wouldn't eat that. Surely you wouldn't eat an animal. All of that is happening to Aang all at once. And he's really being confronted with all of that along with this loneliness that he's feeling. Meanwhile, at an Earth Kingdom pub, a fierce arm wrestling challenge is happening. Gotta have a good arm wrestling challenge if you have a bounty hunter. Great. Have it happen in a rowdy pub. June is the one wrestling some dude. And Zuko and Iroh show up. There's a beautiful moment in here, which is very meta, because why would she know to call them this? I need to talk to you. Well, if it isn't my new friends, Angry Boy and Uncle Lazy. <laughs> <laughs> It's more like a inside joke to us, the viewer, when she calls Zuko angry boy and Iroh uncle lazy, which is that's a beautiful joke. Right after she wins a ton of money from winning that arm wrestling challenge, Zuko is insisting that he be reimbursed. Remember how the sheer shoot ripped apart his ship? He's like, you owe me for that. And of course, she's getting her money and can't be bothered. I don't have money. I'm sorry. And by the way, June is played by Jennifer Hale, who is one of the most wonderful voice actresses in the world. So she's very cool. Can we talk about real quick oh, yeah. this arm wrestling bout? I mean, am I wrong or does my guy look like Ryu from Street Fighter? First and foremost. <laughs> yeah, I'm thinking of the whole time. <laughs> So she's got all the money. She says she doesn't have any money. In the meanwhile, she's buying the entire bar drinks. And Zuko gives Jun Katara's necklace. He's got an idea. He's seen this bounty hunter. He's like, I know how to use this bounty hunter. Find the bald monk that this girl, who owns a necklace, is traveling with. She's not into it. And only when they agree to pay her the equivalent of Uncle Iroh's weight in gold... Does she say yes? She holds a necklace up under the Shearshu's nose. And we now know that Katara to a Shearshu has a sort of a purple aura. And we're looking at these different colored threads. So this Shearshu Nyla is going to follow the purple thread to Katara. Unfortunately, I think it's probably going to succeed, but we're not there yet. I just want to say, Iroh's reactions to everything that June does, my favorite thing in the world. He's delighted. Yeah. Insulting him and calling him Uncle Lazy and all that. He just cracks up. That's how I want to live my entire life. Yeah. doesn't matter how hard somebody's being towards me. I just want to like crack up takes away all power yeah um, <laughs> so we're back with team avatar at night and we learn that bato is at the abbey waiting a message from their father about the location of their rendezvous point he's got to come with them once they know where it is so that they can be with their father again and a reminder they haven't seen their dad in two years yeah ang leaves while they're still talking about it and so he misses when katara and Sokka say well they can't go because they're committed supporting and accompanying ang on his quest and Aang also misses when Bato then says that their father would understand and be proud that they're helping the Avatar. Mm-hmm. Aang's just out on his water tribe boat alone. And a messenger on an ostrich horse delivers a map to Aang. And it's the location of Sokka and Katara's dad. And here we have this rough moment. Aang crumbles up the map into a ball, hides it in his clothes. And when he returns to the others, he doesn't give them the map. Instead, he behaves very strangely. What a classic moment as the viewer who has more information than the hero. You left your Because they said they were going to go with you. It's all cool. <laughs> yeah. Like, he's not around for that. Ugh. Three quarters of all cinema is based on a miscommunication. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> now That's right. we see Zuko and company revisiting places the Avatar has been, including the apothecary. Then we cut back to the abbey. Aang is feeding off of hay, and his motion causes the map to fall out. For a brief moment, it seems as if he's caught, but the nun's just chatting him for littering. 
And then the next scene, the crew heads back to the Water Tribe boat, realizing there are tracks in the sand. Aang airbends the traces of the ostrich horse's trails away before anyone can see it, while Bato announces that he's going to take Sokka ice dodging, something he missed doing when he should have when he was younger. His father should have took him out as a rite of passage when he was 14. That never happened when his father left too early. And now we cut back to Zuko and Iroh and June, who are now at Aunt Wu's village. They're not there long, but it's here where we get a good saying from Uncle Iroh when Aunt Wu asks him, Care to hear your fortune, handsome? At my age, there is really only one big surprise left, and I'd just as soon leave it a mystery. Which I love. That's great. So on the boat, Bato explains that ice dodging is the ceremonial test of wisdom, bravery, and trust. And since there's no ice, Sokka's going to be dodging a bunch of extremely dangerous-looking rocks. I would say they look more scary than I would imagine the ice to be that he would normally be dodging in the South Pole. And each person is given a responsibility. And there's some thick and wonderful irony happening in this part of the episode because we already know what Aang is up to. And, of course, Aang's responsibility is directly tied to trust. Aang, you can control the jib. Without your steady hand, we all go down. Your position is about trust. I know that. Why wouldn't I know that? I'm the Avatar. I know about trust. So they have this very lively mini-adventure inside this episode where they are successfully dodging these rocks. Sokka's guiding them through. And then when they finish, Bato gives Sokka the mark of the wise, which is the same mark that Sokka's father also earned, which is lovely. Katar gets the mark of the brave. And Aang gets the mark of the trusted. (laughs) It's now worse. (laughs) He's an honorary member of the Water Tribe. And this is way too much for Aang. Message received. I am a jerk. But like Millie Vanilli winning the Grammy. No, don't give us the Grammy. Oh, no. Sure, half the people out there, they're not going to even understand the Millie Vanilli. Look it up. It's definitely a fun tidbit from the 80s. Yeah. So that's it. And in a way, I would say this is a gift to Aang. He can't hold on to this, nor should he hold on to this. So it actually turns out to be a gift. No, you can't trust me. Aang, what are you talking about? A messenger gave this to me for Bato. You have to understand. I was afraid he was- This is the map to our father! You had it the whole time? How could you? Well, you can go to the North Pole on your own. I'm going to find Dad. I can't be trusted. I can't be trusted. And he reveals the map, which is the worst feeling. I'm sure neither of you have ever done anything wrong. But that moment when you have to cop to something, the the pins and needles of heat on your face is such a visceral memory. Mm -hmm. To get caught in a lie? The worst thing ever. so bad. It's real bad. And of course, no surprise, they are furious. And they're so hurt. Because they're not coming from a place of empathy for Aang. In this moment, he's just flat out hidden something vitally important to them. And this is where some more irony plays its part, which is if Aang hadn't lied, he would have gotten exactly what he had hoped for. True. Katara and Sokka weren't going to abandon him. But by doing this, he causes the very thing that he was trying to avoid in making this bad decision and this broken heart that he was feeling in that moment. I mean, I love the sophistication of that in the show. I love touches like that. And so they reverse their decision. They've decided that they're going to go find their father. And then we're left with a commercial break. And we just have to deal with our feelings on that. <laughs> As you said earlier, he didn't even keep the lie for that long. And he's not a good liar. He's a really bad liar. No, he... Hey, what's this on the ground I just found? <laughs> yeah. But it's good that he's a bad liar because he shouldn't be a good liar. He comes fully clean. You're right. He does not in any yeah. way try to cover it. Like he just owns it. Goes to show that the mark of the trusted went to the right person in the first place anyway. <gasps> 
way. Exactly. Oh, exactly. Oh, everything's reversing on itself. You're so right. I didn't even notice that. He earned the mark of the trusted in that moment. Yeah. With it on his forehead at that <laughs> oh, time. The irony. <laughs> So we're back at the Abbey, and everyone's getting ready to leave Park Company with a rueful ang. Katara clearly conflicted, wishes him luck. Bato, Sokka, and Katara take off. Aang's going to leave the Abbey as well. And since they know what happened, even the nuns are a bit harsh to him. And Aang is full of deep, deep regret. And shortly after everyone has left, June and her Shirshu Nyla uh, arrive at the Abbey, and they're getting close. Meanwhile, on their new journey, Sokka and Katara hear a mournful wolf that's been separated from its pack, and Bato notes that he can relate. Sokka understands as well as he realizes that Aang is a part of their family, or pack. Sokka? We need to go back. I want to see Dad, but helping Aang is where we're needed the most. You're right. Your father will understand, and I know he's proud of you. Thanks, Bato. I know where to go from here. Take this in case you want to find us. So Bato completely understands and continues on, but not before giving the map to Katara and Sokka. We go to Aang, who's at the beach, and a nun finds him and says some dangerous people are looking for him. And when she tells them they're using a necklace to track, Aang quickly realizes it must be Katara's necklace. And indeed, the Shirshu does find Katara, but of course now they're separated from Aang. And there's also a fun moment here when June says that Katara's way too pretty for Zuko, which I love. Yeah. Uh, All right. We have to throw that one in there, Barney? Yeah. But the gang's in trouble. What now? What are they doing? Uh, angry boy and Uncle Lazy. June has got a beat on Zuko. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> There's a lot going on here, and I absolutely love that June is a little bit omniscient. She's a little bit saying the things that we as viewers want her to say. I love those characters. That's kind of trickstery, too, actually. They try to run, but the sure shoe commanded by June with her whip paralyzes them, and June and Zuko find the map. And the Shirshu also grabs Aang's scent, which is blue. Good to know. They swiftly head back to the Abbey, but once there, the Shirshu is just going in circles. Suddenly, Aang hops out of the sky and knocks the Shirshu down, which is very cool. We're going to get one of those... It's like a fight scene time. Let's go. And then June whips at it, and we are reminded that the Shirshu itself is probably not bad. It's just being hurt into doing bad things. Luckily, Team Avatar has a large and in-charge animal of its own, and Appa appears and knocks Nyla into the wall, like, super hard. During this scene, the Shirshu's doing so much stuff. It's like overpowered. Like, this animal is... So gangster. Yeah. It's unstoppable. It didn't even occur to me that Appa would be a match for the Shirshu after seeing that thing Not at tear all. through metal. Until the hmm. moment he comes flying in, I was like, ooh, Appa. <laughs> yeah. Then we get to see this really crazy fight between the Shirshu and Appa. Now Zuko is confronting Aang, and he begins firebending, and Aang defends impressively, as always. And we realize like they're an even match for each other. There's even a moment in which their powers collide and both are sent through the air, slamming into separate roofs. They like knock themselves out. There's a moment during this fight where it's like concussion city. Everyone's knocked out. The two animals are knocked <laughs> out. Aang and Zuko are knocked out. They totally destroy the heck out of this abbey. Every wall's <laughs> yeah. roofs are messed up. Everyone's knocked out. Aang's not necessarily the guy who's making sure that doesn't happen. I no. It's the superhero thing. So much destruction <laughs> yeah, going right. on. Exactly. Exactly but we're right. saving the day. Finally, the gang manages to get onto Appa and are close to escaping, but the Shirshu paralyzes him with its tongue. Run! It took a few tongue lashings, but he finally got to Appa. 
it was crazy. Yeah. But Appa doesn't stay down for long. He headbutts his sheer shoe, separating it from June. There's a lot going on. This is like a crazy scene. Multiple people fighting, animals fighting. It was, yeah. there's a lot going on. I had just forgotten about how much it's clear that June is responsible for what makes the sheer shoe so dangerous and what makes it so aggressive, you know? Like, that's so Mike and Brian and Team right. Avatar on the whole, the production team on the whole. No, no, this is not a villain. Don't think of the sheer shoe as, like, the bad animal. This is an animal that is responding to being hurt by its owner. And I just thought that was so great. And I was mad at myself for having forgotten that because in my mind I had leftover feelings of the sheer shoe as being this evil creature. And then in watching, I was like, oh, not at all. Not at all. This is a June thing. Of course, it's a human being that's like turning it into this aggressive thing that's paralyzing people with its toxic tongue. So Zuko's after Aang. We know this battle is continuing on. To your point, Dante, blowing up the Abbey. Some really nice sequences on the rooftops, though, which did feel very Crouching Tiger, uh, Hidden Dragon, which was a huge cultural yeah. wave of influence when it came out. It was a very, very big deal. I think they can even go back further. There's a moment where Zuko and Oppa are fighting on the well. It's very reminiscent of an old kung fu film that we used to watch called Master Killer. That's the other great thing about the show. It kind of as kids, we used to watch Kung Fu Theater on Saturday mornings, and I'm sure, sure Mike and Brian watched these films too, Master Killer, yeah. the Flying Guillotine, Five Deadly Venoms. There's aspects of the shows and the fights that crept into the show, and that's one of them. I was watching it going, oh my god, Master Killer. Yeah. So, Appa's really helping. He's still in the game. He's using his airbending. Katara and Sokar are sadly still paralyzed, and it reminds me of when they're trapped in the rock by King Boomy too. Like, sometimes Katara and Sokar are just, like, off to the side, frozen in place and can't do anything. Iroh never Everyone to miss an opportunity to stop and smell the proverbial roses is uh, enjoying the various perfumes. And Aang then catches a glimpse of Katara's necklace as Zuko attacks him. And he says, you've got something I want. The fight continues. Now they're at the edge of the well, right? And then Aang falls down into the well. We see Zuko blast a big fireball right down into the well behind him. But after that, a rush of water shoots out. Appa's getting paralyzed by Nyla's poisonous tongue over there, which is very sad and hard to see. And then a nun is over reviving Katara and Sokka with one of the perfumes. Yeah. And all this business about the perfume has given our man Sokka another idea. That thing sees with its nose. Let's give him something to look at. The perfume? And so... They send this waterfall of mixed scents blown into the Shirshu's senses and its ability to track becomes useless and it's frantically paralyzing people with its tongue, including Zuko. Even June gets a taste, which... You had that coming, June. Sorry. Taste your own medicine, June. Mm -hmm. And at this point, maybe, again, we want to just address a little bit of a creepy crush on June. Uh, um, <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> so he's delighted by her. He's charmed by her. Borderline creepy. Brian and I were talking about it, and he did say, not one of Iroh's finer no. moments. No, uncle. <laughs> okay, so we've established the crush. Let's move on. What's going on with Team Avatar? Team Avatar, including the very brave and wonderful Appa, is okay. They're reunited. Everything's forgiven, Aang, Katara, Sokka, Appa, and Momo fly toward the North Pole, and Aang asks, Don't you want to see your father? Of course we do, Aang. But you're our family too. And right now, you need us more. And we need you. I wish I could give you a little piece of home, Katara. Something to remind you... I'll be okay. Still, just a little trinket. Maybe something like this? 
how'd you get that? Zuko asked me to be sure I got it to you. Oh, that's so sweet of Zuko. Would you give him a kiss for me when you see him? Sure. Mwah. Lucky for Aang, the joke plays out with Katara kissing Aang on the cheek and Katang shivers go wild. And we're ready for the next chapter of their adventure and they fly off into the distance with Aang with blushing all over his cheeks. That was cute. We talked about this because he that told me- That fight had so many different things going on. Yeah. But we see, again, that his dishonesty is just like, that's a non-issue to me. He's a kid and he felt so vulnerable. For me, that being a hot button for people when they talk about Aang as the Avatar and making that choice, that's just like not no. even a thing. I like our heroes having flaws. It's totally understandable. I get into it more when I'm like, oh, they went through something. They did something wrong. Even if they knew it was wrong when they did it, it feels more human to me. Yeah. Yeah. Well, one of the things that comes up in this episode that we've talked about a little bit on the podcast before, particularly with The Great Divide, is this idea of Aang as embodying a bit of the coyote trickster character, in addition to being this massively important being responsible for keeping the world in balance, that there's stuff happening there that allows for playfulness, that allows for the occasional lie. Like he has flaws. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and he has to be a human being. You don't want somebody who doesn't understand what it's like to be human to be tasked with this kind of responsibility. That's where the problems can really happen. So this episode and The Great Divide are often spoken about in the same conversation because they're the two key moments, certainly in book one, that Aang lies. And in one, he makes a decision that was far more trickster-like. And in this, he's doing something that is from his most human, right. most vulnerable, raw, traumatized state. From fear, for sure. Yeah. But I think it will be fun to talk about that a little bit more as we dig deeper into it. So here's the thing about in terms of the way that the power and getting into situations thing that definitely translates over from Ang as a trickster. But the thing about the trickster character through different mythologies, not just native mythologies, but around the world, is that the trickster never learns anything. Mm. Part of the mythologies, but it's not necessarily part of the community. You look at the trickster as a way of like not to be. So in that way, there are some previous avatars in the Avatar universe that are definitely very much trickster characters where you look at them and be like, oh, okay, they use their power not necessarily in the way that they should have. But yeah. Aang, is, he's a different version. He's somebody that's actually trying to do something for the better. And he's trying to learn all the time. One of the interesting sort of cultural touchstones that I think comes across in this episode is the rite of passage part. Yeah. On a rewatch, on the first time around, I didn't really think about it that much. It sort of felt natural and a part of the world. But the rite of passage thing is actually like really important for every culture around the world. Totally. Different people have different versions of it. It doesn't matter what religion or culture or ethnicity or whatever you come from. There are always rites of passage that transition from being a kid that can make mistakes to what that means to be a responsible adult, a human being that's going to be a part of this community. For that to happen, not just with Sokka, but with all mm. three of them, wow. they are stepping up. That allows them to be like, oh, this is the community we're going to create. This is the family that we're going to create. This is the family right. we're going to choose. Those things that happen sort of speak to this global theme of the world having to move on to a better place. And it sort of speaks to the theme of like Aang overall, which is we can make mistakes in the past, but there's a way to fix it. It's not necessarily the way you think it's going to be. Oftentimes it's just owning up. Every character goes through this, particularly everybody has flaws that they have to get over. And then that's like the stuff of heroes. Aang could easily go bouncing about for the rest of his life and not really paying attention to what's going on in the world because he's like hurt by his friends and feeling alone and all that. And I feel like honestly, he would be justified. 
Because you got to imagine what sort of trauma gets triggered when you literally have no people left. Yeah. Yeah. And the two people that you have gotten are suddenly like they're in danger of leaving you. Yeah. Imagine how lonely, what a lonely place you would be. Yeah. It's understandable. And he could go a route of like this all powerful do nothing. Honestly, it'd be understandable. Yeah. But because he has a community that makes him a part of this. I love the distinction that he ain't a member of the tribe, but he's an honorary member with them. Yeah. And it's because he went through this thing with them as a part of this community ritual, this thing that they all do together. I see this episode as sort of a turning point that I think is actually more subtle, Hmm. but more powerful than people realize, which is this solidifies in a ritualistic way his connection to Sokka and Katara as a part of this community. And that means not just the part of their community, but the global community. And he's suddenly part of these people in this time right now. He's no longer a person of the past. He's here and present in a part of the world as it is right now. That's what's so powerful about this thing. It's that it's, it's not just Saki Katara, but it's an elder person accepting this kid Aang as one of their own and giving him a place to be, which is this global community. And I think that that's really that's oh, pretty that's incredible. so good. Wow, you just hit us with some heaviness. Some, you got my mind <laughs> yeah, spinning. You're so just, just right. Absolutely. Because it is such a great juxtaposition to the experience that he has in the frenzy of them being reunited with Bato. It's totally understandable that, of course, they're going to be super focused on Bato. Aang's going to be a little bit of an afterthought because he isn't a part of their tribe. He isn't a part of their history. And here we have these sequence of events that seemingly isolate Aang further and further from the community of this tribe, the rituals, the animal pelts, the ceremonial skins, the stewed sea prunes, all of these (laughs) things that are kind of other to him or othering him, not on purpose, but just by virtue of a culture difference. And then when it really matters and the place it matters, Aang is seen. He is right there. He is a key part of that rite of passage because you're so right. It's such a big deal deal. I'm so glad you brought it up. It's such a big deal. For Saka, the mark of the wise, the same mark your father earned. For Katara, the mark of the brave, your courage inspires us. And for Aang, the mark of the trusted. And the ideas of rites of passage is not something that is always common in afternoon cartoons. It's heavy. It's heavy. It's heavy. They're like important things. And I think to a degree, we do lack some of those rites of passages in like modern society. And I think that kind of gets us into this very, especially in our town in L.A., you like get caught up in these like Peter Pan syndrome of people that they don't want to grow up. And there's lacking some of these rites of passages to move you on to the next place you're supposed to go. And if you're going to go save the world, you got to be responsible yeah. and you got to act in a certain way and be accountable to each other because you've now crossed certain rites of passage and you no longer can act that way. Right. Yeah. And, and that's heavy. That's crazy. That's so great. And you're right. It's so perfect that they find Bato in that moment. Just wherever they are, that transition is able to take place. Sometimes it isn't. Well, we have to have these exact circumstances. These exact people have to be present for this. Here are the rules. We need to abide exactly by those that Bato sees an opportunity to acknowledge Sokka's choices, Sokka's aging, but it's about also the other two and that they're going to make it work where they are because it's more about the journey they've already been on and the one they're going to continue on. Yeah, let's not get caught up in the details of tradition to like stop what we're supposed to be doing. Yeah. Which I love. The meat of what takes place is where the real deep value is, I think. That's lovely. Wow. 
Let's talk a minute. I really hammered the sheer shoe thing into the ground, and that was a big Animal Crossing moment. So hats off to Nyla. Shout out to Lisa Yang. Let's talk about some most valuable bending moments and most valuable non-bending moments in the episode. There's a lot that goes on in this episode. There's a good amount of bending going on. (laughs) I think what Dante brought up when he was recapping is the two of them, their powers matched, and then... I think what that says to me is there's equal and opposite. And all they did is just explode each other and send each other flying into some rooftops. That's pretty good. There's something cool to that, that they're both unleashed at the same time. And it was some zero game for everybody. All it did is just... Yeah. It's like the anti-Earthbenders when we first see them in the prison. We get chills when we see what it's like when they're working in harmony and the power behind that. This is sort of the antithesis of that. Yeah, that was a lot of power. Guess what came of it? <laughs> yes. Nothing. Nothing. Yeah. Zero-sum game. As we're re-watching it, that buildup of them fighting is from the mirrored episode happening in the storm to what happened in the blue spirit. Then all of a sudden they're here to actually have a fight and you see they're canceling each other out. Yeah. Every encounter between the two of them post Blue Spirit has been completely colored with that lens, for me anyway, in this super emotional way. Once you have that moment where they've saved each other's lives from the outside and Aang is really curious, like, could we have been friends if things were different? That is infused through every face-off that they have going forward. I love that, McGizzy, and I totally agree. I think that is the most valuable bending moment just from the broad perspective of how we're understanding these characters and where they're headed and what the value of their powers is. I love that. I love that. Just another side note, I'm alluding to some past episodes of the podcast. I think Zuko had a really good thought about catching the Avatar this time with the Zuko. Good idea. It was very good. But no one told you to bring the net. If he had a net, he would have been good. <laughs> he found him. The Avatar got caught a few times and everyone had a net, McGizzy. <laughs> now, true. Zuko yeah. never has the net, but he had the sheer suit. He was on the trail. <laughs> it was such a brilliant idea. He's like, the tongue paralyzes. I I don't need a net, okay? I have a paralyzing <laughs> tongue. You should have had me. that net. He would have for sure had that Avatar. Do you have a bending moment, Varney? Do you, you have a bending moment? I 100% agree. I love the uselessness of the bending in that moment being the most valuable bending for the long-term story. I love that. I'm going to go with you. I agree. Because it also goes with the reversal that we saw throughout the episode. Aang made the thing he didn't want to have happen happen. When he told the truth about lying, he became trustworthy. And when Zuko and Aang faced off and their powers canceled each other out, that is the most valuable lesson of bending that we learn in that episode. And I think that works perfectly. Most valuable non-bending... I kind of want to say when Aang comes clean. I mean, he made a bad decision to hide the map, but the value of trust, it is that situation, right, where something happens in a relationship that feels horrible when it's happening. But if you approach it the right way and if you use that to mend it, it is stronger on the other side. And so... He does this thing that is, you know, shocking on some level, but also totally understandable. But the fact that he has the presence of mind and his heart tells him, I can't let this go on for one moment longer. I don't deserve this. Come clean. And comes clean. That's a really hard thing to do. And it ends up cementing their bond in a much deeper way from my perspective. What do you guys think? That's the lesson in the whole show, for sure. And it it is ironic when you can kind of come clean and get through the embarrassment and the dishonor of lying and come clean with it. It has a way of either totally splitting people up or making their bond stronger. 
You have to take that risk, though. It's a risk. McKizzy, what do you think? I was going to say the pouring out the perfumes and stuff. That was my side note. It's just the nuns that made the perfume because Mm -hmm. if they didn't make (laughs) those great perfumes... Tracing something back to its root gets so complicated. They had to make that perfume because if they didn't make that perfume (laughs) to confuse the shirsu, that shirsu is so OP. (laughs) He was tongue lashing everybody it was all over june was going to be the fire lord by the end of like the next episode like that jersey was crazy true june didn't have any bendings she's a tough cookie she was the toughest non-bender out there i mean i love how some non-benders come into this bending world and they hold their own i have no bending skills but i'm a beast oh yeah oh yeah this has been a joy what a pleasure Megizzy, thank you so much for taking time out of writing and contributing other wonderful things to the world. Yeah, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. I hope that you will consider coming back. Please. Yeah, absolutely. Should we ask him that one last question we ask everybody? Go for it. Megizzy, if you were a bender in the world, what kind of bender would you be? Um... Oh, man, that is a firebender for sure. It would have to be. Fire Nation. Nice acting like you were conflicted and you couldn't even finish the sentence. You're like, I don't know, firebender. I'm going to tell you right now, there's this chiefy-ass native part of me that wants to be like, well, water is life, you know, and we're all... (laughs) Water is life. But no, it's it's firebender. (laughs) I'm too immediately and aggressive a person that once I make my decisions, I'm just like, nope, that's it, I'm going for it. And I'm aggressive (laughs) in just the right way that a firebender would need to be, I think. Dante, you're doing well because we had a spate there where no one identified as a firebender. I know. We were doing some shows. It was like, nobody's in Fire Nation. I was like, Now oh we my feel like goodness. we've had some consistency and there's a lot some of fire showing fire up. Nation. Everything's about balance. It's all about balance. That's right. It's all it is. balance. <laughs> what a pleasure. McGizzy, is there anything else people should know about? Are you into the social media? You just want people to be watching a show they should already be watching, but all love anybody who isn't watching it. I Just go watch it because it's so good. It's fun. Yeah, no, we're in the middle of season two right now, writing season two, which is insane. Yeah, no, I'm on the Twitters. My name is just my name. It's Megazy Pensano out there, and and I am findable. I always encourage anybody to engage with me. Like, I'm unafraid that way. Firebender. Fire Nation. And in terms of my stuff, watch Reservation Dogs if you haven't. Somebody from the Fire Nation helped write it, so there you go. There you go. Get on it. All right, everybody, we will talk to you next time on Braving the Elements. This was awesome. Thank you so much. Follow us on social media. I'm at Janet Varney on Twitter, at the JV Club on Instagram. You are at Dante Bosco basically everywhere, Everywhere, except on TikTok, at Dante. And next week, we'll be getting real deep with the iconic voice actress who plays June and Avatar Kiyoshi, Jennifer Hill. We'll see everybody next Tuesday on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. 